Well, last week, Jason preached that Jesus was praying for himself that he would be glorified in all that he did. Next week, Kenny's going to pray or is going to preach about Jesus' prayer for all believers. This week, sandwiched between these two sections of this prayer, Jesus is praying something different. But these aren't separate sections of one prayer. These are interconnected and interdependent upon one another. They feed off of one another. And in understanding this middle section, what we just prayed, or what we just read, we're going to use something you probably learned in middle school English. We're going to ask questions of the text. We're going to ask, who is Jesus praying for? We're going to ask what it is that Jesus is praying. And finally, we're going to ask, why is Jesus praying as he did? Who, what, and why? So first, who is Jesus praying for? Well, do that, to do that, put yourself in the position of the people that are hearing Jesus' prayer. You're one of the 11 disciples. You've just finished the Passover meal. Sun is set. It's dark outside. You knew something big was about to happen, but you're really still vague on the details here. And you're listening as Jesus is praying to God, asking the Father to glorify him with the same glory that he enjoyed before the world was created. And your mind, as you're listening, is blowing up. The Son of God, the one who existed from eternity, who's the only way to eternal life, is praying. And then when you come back to your senses, you notice that Jesus has changed the focus of his prayer. And all of a sudden, he's preaching, he's praying for you. Not praying for himself anymore. He's praying for you as one of the disciples. And so you're hanging on every word. As Christians, we know we don't do this as well as we would like. But we're called to be a praying people. We're called to pray for one another. We're called to ask for prayer and humility from one another. Have you ever, have you ever had someone pray for you and they get you and they pray in a way that really meets you where you're at? Maybe you're discouraged and they come alongside you and they're praying God's word and they say, if God is for you, who can be against you? And you're your heart fills with hope and courage because they are praying God's word to you. Maybe like Gabe was saying today and Kenny was sharing, maybe you are battling condemnation over sin and you just can't get out of your way. And then someone comes along, you share it with them and they remind you of what you knew when you were first saved. Jesus died in your place. He has taken the penalty for your sin. You are no longer under the condemnation of sin. And you find condemnation losing its grip on you. Maybe you're anxious. And that person comes along, finds out what's going on and says, Friend, God cares about the birds of the air and the grass of the field. How much more is he going to care for them who are made in his image? And your heart, you find anxiety leaving. This friend knows your needs and points you to God. Well, Jesus knew the disciples' greatest need. And he's praying very specifically for them. And so if you're a disciple that Jesus is praying for, what is it you hear? Again and again, what do you hear coming from Jesus' lips? Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, 
and you gave them to me. Jump down to verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me. Verse 10. All mine are yours and yours are mine. Very simply, these 11 men were given to Jesus by God the Father. Before Peter, James, and John dropped their nets and followed Jesus, they were in the hands and the protection of the Father. Before Matthew left his tax collector's booth and Jesus said, follow me, he was the Father's. Friends, this is, these are profound truths that Jesus is praying right now. And we cannot get into all the details here, but there's something rich here that we'll never fully understand this side of heaven. We see in a mirror dimly right now these grand truths that God has called us before the foundation of the world. But it's beautiful, it's mysterious, it's majestic, and it fills us with hope. And that's the implication that it has for the disciples. As they're listening to Jesus pray, they realize, we didn't choose God. We didn't choose to follow Jesus. Jesus called us, but we were already the fathers. What does that do to their hearts? Jesus hasn't even started praying for them yet. But he's reminding them of who has them. And so as the Son of God is praying for them, and he's going to get into some very specific prayers, they're already going in knowing this is going to happen. This is the Son of God praying for us. Someone who has known us before the creation of the world. I can take this to the bank. So they're coming into Jesus' specific prayers with great confidence. And before we get to those two other questions, what it is that Jesus prays and why he prays, I want us to, to look at the scripture and remember what, it is tr- what is true about the Bible. It was written at a specific time in history and had specific purposes for the people at the time it was written. But it also applies to us. There are redemptive truths for us in our moment of history that we can extract from what Jesus is praying here. So yes, he's, he's praying for the disciples and it meant something to them. And we want to understand that it also means something for us. So as we're, as, as we're getting into what it is that Jesus is praying and why he's praying it, put yourself in the shoes of the disciple. It's for you as well. So what is it that Jesus prays for his friends? Four specific things. He prays for unity. He prays for protection. He prays for joy. And he prays for sanctification. Unity, protection, joy, and sanctification. Kenny's going to get into unity next week because he prays that later on in the end of the prayer. This morning we are going to, to look at protection, joy, and sanctification. Let's start with protection. Ever since I've been, I was a kid, I have loved to fly. I love airport. Well, I don't like security now, but I love airports. I love taking off. I love landing. I love looking out the window and seeing the beauty of creation, sunsets, sunrises, stars. It's, it's exhilarating to me. But since I became a Christian, I do not take any flight before takeoff or prior to landing without praying. It's, it's, it's inevitable. I, I just close my eyes and I pray. I don't presume that the pilot got a lot of sleep the night before. I don't presume that they're not in an argument with their spouse. I don't take for granted that, that wind shear is not going to come out of nowhere. So what do I do? 
I pray. And we should do that. We should pray for physical protection. It's right to do that. Is that what Jesus is doing here as he gets into praying for the disciples? Verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Another way of saying Father, Holy Father, protect them in your name. Proverbs says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Jesus is praying that the Father would bring everything to bear in protecting the disciples that's true about himself. God the Father is almighty. He's a provider. He's a sustainer. He's a healer. He's a shield. He's a deliverer. Jesus is just saying, Lord, Father, bring all these to bear and protect these men that I love. Jesus did that himself. He was there with the disciples for three years. He's leaving soon. He's acutely aware of the challenges, the temptations that they're going to face in the world because he's going away and they're helpless to stand on their own. So what does he do? He prays that the Father would protect them. A little further on in verse 11, Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Not the world. That was back in verse 11. Verse 15, he says, protect them from the evil one. Quite literally, the Father is asking, or Jesus is asking the Father to protect them from Satan. Satan went after Jesus. The disciples are in union with Christ. We are in union with Christ. How can we presume that Satan's not going to come after us as well? So in praying for the Father to keep them from the temptations of the world and the attacks of the evil one, Jesus is most concerned with their spiritual health, not their physical health. Doesn't mean he doesn't care, but he's most concerned about their witness, about their faith, about where they stand with him, about what they would believe in the midst of temptations and attacks. The protection of their souls is what is most on Jesus' heart. Now, we know the world isn't totally evil. We know that Satan loses in the end, but he is still active and present. The world is in heaven yet. He has still been allowed by God's sovereignty a measure of power, even though he's on a chain. According to George Barna, the pollster, the notion that Satan or the devil is a real being who can influence lives is regarded as hogwash by most people. Only 25% of the people believe that Satan is real and has influence, while the majority argue that he is simply a symbol of evil. Well, I think what we should do as Christians is not abide by worldly wisdom or polls. We should take our cue from Scripture. And John and Peter took their cues from Jesus. John warns in one of his letters, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. If you are breathing today, you know what John's talking about. You know the temptations that exist. Peter, addressing the attacks, writes this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, not an idea, not a symbol, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. Resist him. 
We must, if we believe our Bibles, believe that Satan is active and present. He deceived and seduced Eve. He wrecked havoc on Job and his family. He tempted Jesus. He incited Judas to betray Jesus. In 2022, I see no evidence that he's given up his futile fight. Even so, we don't need to be afraid of Satan. We don't need to be afraid of the world. In fact, our call is to engage the world in spite of what's happening. We're just not to be unduly influenced by the world. Jesus had influence because he was different from the world. It drew people to him. Paul was different from the world. He was all things to all people, but he preached foolishness that some might be saved. He preached Christ and Christ crucified. We do well to imitate Jesus in our prayers. His prayers for our protection stand right alongside God's promises to protect us when we are in the world. Let's just simply pray for what God has promised to do. So after praying for protection, Jesus turns next to one of Jesus' favorite desires for his, his, his people. He turns to their joy. Verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is praying simply what he was talking to them about just a few, verse, a few chapters earlier. Back in chapter 15, he was talking with them and said, these things I have spoken to you, all that he was talking about in the last week of his life, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is very interested in our joy. So interested that he prays for it. And interesting, in the Bible... Joy is both a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Secondly, joy. But it's also, interestingly, a command. It's an expectation that God has of us. We see um, Paul in many of his letters, even from prison, saying rejoice always in all circumstances with prayer and thanksgiving. It's an expectation of Christians that we be joyful. Honestly, though, as I look at my life, as I know many of you well, this expectation of joy is one of the most perplexing and challenging that I think we face as believers, to be joyful in this world. So much of our lives seem to be opposed to our joy, chronic suffering, death, financial stress, relational separation, lack of reconciled relationships, countries being invaded. Nonetheless, Jesus prays for us to have joy. Now, to understand biblical joy, though, we must see that Jesus is speaking of our joy. The joy that he calls us to, the joy that he prays for, is a derivative joy. Not something that wells up with inside of us. The joy he prays us to have is joy that only can come from him. It's a reflection of his joy. Our joy is necessarily bound up in the joy of Christ. Yet, it's hard to get a hold of, is it not? Why is that? There's many obstacles to joy. I only want to mention two this morning. First, based on personal experience alone... I believe that unconfessed sin is near the top 
of the list of things that block us from experiencing the joy of the Lord. Every Wednesday, every Wednesday, our three granddaughters come over to our house for Bible with Nana. And then when all that's done before they go home, they have fun with Pa. So we each have our own roles with our grandkids. Well, this past Wednesday, they came over and two of the girls were really being mean to the third. I mean, vicious. Like the only way that, that, that sisters and brothers could be towards you, they were being really mean, saying something. I wanted to... <laughs> They're my granddaughters. <laughs> but, but like a, a godly grandfather, I pulled the two of them aside, huddled them up, spoke patiently and kindly to them, and, and said that they needed to ask their sister for forgiveness, and then peace reigned. That's what I did, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's what godly grandfathers do. Sadly, at that moment, the fruit of my preaching to them was evident that I needed to hear what I was preaching more than they needed to hear it. I got it off my chest. They were quiet, but there was zero joy in my heart. And I knew it. You know instantly. So what did I do? I pulled the two aside. Truly, this time I pulled them aside. I sat down with them. I confessed my sin. I shared the gospel. I used it as an opportunity to share the gospel with them, asked them to forgive me. They forgave me. And we went and played on the swing set, had fun with Pa. <laughs> Guys, I, I can't tell you. I, I think you know what I'm talking about. Instantly, the moment, the moment I asked for forgiveness and they said, yeah, we forgive you, Pa, and hugged and kissed me. I mean, it was like nanoseconds later. Joy filled my heart. I didn't ask for it. I confessed my sin, received forgiveness, and joy flooded in. How many times do I miss that opportunity? How many times do I delay asking for forgiveness and missing an opportunity to feel, experience the joy of the Lord, which is my strength? <sighs> King David knew what that was like. He confessed in Psalm 51 his adultery and murder, and he prayed for the Lord to restore to him the joy of the Lord's salvation. David is asking to be restored with a derivative joy, the joy of the Lord. He can't undo his sin or the consequences of his sin, but he can repent and pray for joy to return to his soul. I believe, without a doubt, that if we were quicker to repent of our sin, we would experience far more joy in our lives. The shortest path to the joy of the Lord often comes in the wake of a humble response to our sin. That's the first thing that can sap our joy. Secondly, circumstances being the highest goal that we have for our joy can sap us. We're running after something that just won't deliver. We're joyful when we're comfortable, when we get a raise, when our kids do what we want them to do, when we have lots of friends, when we're at a party. I can be joyful, I find, when I get what I want, when I want it, and the way I want it. It's this type of mindset that a man named Richard Wombrand was addressing when he wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. Wombrand was a Romanian Christian who endured 14 years of torture in a Moscow prison. He had this to say about Christians and joy. 
He has credibility. I have found truly jubilant Christians only in the Bible, in the underground church, and in prison. Now, I think it's fair to say that's an exaggeration. I personally know many of you who are jubilant Christians in the midst of much suffering. The reality is that we're all called to rejoice under physical, not, re, not called to rejoice under physical torture or imprisonment or worshiping an underground church, but we all have our own path of sanctification. The point that Wombrand has tried to make is that we're called to rejoice in all circumstances. Do you think that Ukrainian Christians get a pass on this? Surely God must understand, right? Well, from what I've read, countless Ukrainian Christians are responding to the brutal invasion of their country to embrace what James writes, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Not limited, various kinds. Ukrainian Christian by the name of Sergei Rakuba has not allowed invasion to sap his joy. Listen to what he says. This, is, this, should, this should cause a check in our spirits. It is easy to trust God when nothing is happening. But it is when we are in the middle of an evil that is sweeping all around that we must rely on God. The heart is bleeding. He's not oblivious to the suffering that he and others are experiencing. The heart is bleeding, he says. But as the love of Jesus shines through tragedy, we can still find hope and joy. If you've seen the pictures that are on the news, and this man is saying that, we should, our ears should perk up and we should listen. There's something for us. I want to know the joy that Sergei has. He's being protected by God. The joy that he has is derivative. It can withstand evil. Derivative joy detached from circumstances and rooted in Christ is unassailable, even by foreign nations. He has found that the pathway to joy is to not allowing his circumstances to determine his joy. He's trusting God. He's thinking about eternity. He's remembering what Christ has done for him and what Christ has called him to, and he's able to access the joy of Christ. I'm not asking for me or any of you to experience what Sergei is walking through. I don't think we have to. We simply need to field the trials and difficulties that God sovereignly places in our lives and listen to Jesus' prayers for us and find joy. The writer of Hebrews said of Jesus, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. If suffering can redeem and redemption leads to eternal joy, then God can help us to be joyful in our suffering. So Jesus has prayed for, um, for, for um, joy, protection. Now he prays for sanctification. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is simply being changed to be more like Jesus over time. To become more holy. Be holy as I am holy, God has said. 
God has promised to help us turn from sin and embrace real change in practical ways in our lives, whether it's speech or our desires, our attitudes, our actions. God does want us to change, not just so we can look forward to heaven, not so we can just be out of conflict. He wants us to pursue holiness. And like the, this is really encouraging to me. Like the other things that Jesus, is pray, Jesus prays for, for protection and joy, he's praying for our sanctification, for us to be made whole. It's not up to us. If Jesus is praying for something, he will do it. He will finish the work that he's begun in each of you. Never happens as quickly, though, does it, as we would like? Doesn't happen as fully as we want. But we know that, day, like Brandon was saying, that day is coming, right? But, but not for a while. Until then, we're to pursue holiness. But notice the instrument that Jesus prays will be used to sanctify us. It's not like we, we uh, go to sleep at night and God's word comes off the shelf, slips under our pillow, and then seeps into our head. It's not osmosis or anything like that. We have to be in the word of God. Jesus, the word made flesh, is encouraging God to allow the word of God to have its intended effect on our souls. We simply can't be sanctified without regular intake of the word of God. That's why it's so good during the week to see ladies out here in the word of God, men here on Saturdays in the word of God. God's going to use that to change you. And while you do, Jesus is in heaven praying for you. Brandon, Ben can come up now. Jesus is in heaven praying for you. He's praying for your protection from spiritual defilement. He's praying for your joy to be present in all circumstances. He's praying for your sanctification to make you holier tomorrow than you are today. And if Jesus is praying these things, you guys, we can be confident it's going to happen. So we've answered the question, who is Jesus praying for? What is it he's praying for? Why does he do this? So we don't mess up our lives, so we feel less guilty, so we don't go to hell, so we get to spend eternity with him. Yeah, those things are all true. For those who trusted in Jesus, those things will happen. But it's not the primary reason. The primary purpose Jesus prays for us to be sanctified, joyful, and protected is found in verse 18. It's so that we can be sent into the world. It's not ultimately about us, you guys. We're protected to be sent. We're given joy to be sent. We're sanctified to be sent. And just as the Father sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus sends his disciples, and so he sends us. Let's go with confidence, confidence that Jesus is praying for us. And when we pray in our PJs, let's pray for protection, joy, and sanctification. Amen?